Good morning, everybody. Welcome. My name is David, and I am the pastor here at Redeemer. And today we continue on in a series that we're doing titled Creed. Uh, Jeff did a great job uh, kind of introducing or reminding us of that with the kids. And what we're doing during this series is studying something known as the Apostles' Creed, which is a summary of the core essential ideas and beliefs that are at the very heart of Christian faith. And um, we have looked at what it means to, to say that I believe in something. Uh, last week, we talked about the Trinity. And uh, this week, I am excited to invite James McKendry, who is going to do uh, Conceived by the Holy Spirit, Born of the Virgin Mary. Uh, for us. I'll hand off the mic to him in a second. I hope that you guys uh, have stepped up to the Apostles' Creed Challenge uh, and are trying to memorize it. If you haven't, there are some bookmarks in the back. Uh, we will do it at the end, so you, so you don't have to listen to James. You can just sit there and try to memorize the Apostles' Creed the whole time. No, uh, but uh, really encourage you guys to do that. It's going to be fun. We're going to stand up and repeat it at the end. We'll say a statement of our, of our belief, but right now, happy to hand it off to my brother, James. Thank you, David. I need some serious prayer this morning. Um, I, we, we are going over conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and so I am, as always, asking that I step aside and that the Holy Spirit can speak through me. I need some special prayer because I'm going to be honest, I am worn out. The last few weeks has taken its toll on me, and so I am fried. However, I'm excited about this message this morning, and so, but if, if you would just pray with me real quick before we get into it. Heavenly Father... I'm a vessel, a broken one, but a vessel for your word, Lord, and let your word flow through me today to these people and let them hear the truth that you would have them hear. Lord, give me the strength to deliver it. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so uh, David originally gave me two choices. He said, hey, man, you can either do suffering under Pontius Pilate or you can do uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And so I tossed it back and forth, and I toyed with it, and I was like, man, I don't know which one I want to do. I started leaning towards suffered under Pontius Pilate, because I thought there was a whole lot more there. I love that interchange between Pilate and Jesus, the whole what is truth thing, you know, and it, it's kind of glorious, you know, Jesus standing before the, the Congress of the day, right, and, and, and testifying. And I, as I rocked along, I got more and more excited about that. I started compiling some stuff to preach on that topic, but I was still praying, like, Lord, if you want me to do something different than just just let me know. And uh, a couple weeks ago, I was up in a little town called Winsboro, Texas. I don't know if y'all have ever heard of it before. Tiny little place, beautiful town, uh, putting a fan in for some chicken farmers up there. Great people. And, uh, and we, we got off on the topic of faith and everything. And, and I said, sir, I'm going to be honest with you. Because he said, you're not going to be able to get it done today, right? I was like, no, I'll stay the night, come back tomorrow. I said, it's okay because I've got and y'all know I don't call it a sermon, right, because I'm not a pastor. So I said, I've got a conversation to write um, for our congregation in a week and a half. I said, so that's fine. I'll go to the hotel and, and start writing. And he goes, we can do it on. <laughs> I was like, that's a great question, you know, actually. I said, I, I'm trying to decide. And so I told him, and he's like, oh, that's a tough one to decide between. And I was like, yeah. I said, it just seems to me that suffered under Pontius Pilate will have more to it than conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And... Uh, so at any rate, the next morning, I got up, and I had to go to Home Depot in Sulphur Springs, the nearest hardware store, uh, to get a couple bolts or whatever I needed, and still haven't decided, not even thinking about being up here today. And I walk up in the aisle, and I'm standing there waiting to check out, and I look over to my left, 
and it's the story of Mary, right? National Geographic, and I went, you got to be kidding me. All right, got it, you know. So I walked up there, I laid this on the counter, and the lady goes, light reading? And I was like, it's an answer from God. And you know, what, the way you would look at somebody weird whenever they said that, right, is it's kind of the, the look that I got. And I was like, it's a long story, but uh, at any rate. So um, obviously, and, and through this, and I, and I read this whole thing, and I learned more about Mary and her childhood and everything else than I ever knew before. And I'm so glad, so glad that he sent me this, bla- I mean, literally sent me a magazine, right, <laughs> to let me know which one to do. Because I've learned more about my faith, learned more about the origins of Christ, literally the origins of Christ, than I ever knew before. And that I would have ever known had I gone a different direction, listened to my own mind and not listened to his word. Um, But along those lines and as well, when David said, hey, you know, we're doing the uh, series on the Apostles' Creed and and he gave me these options and everything. I said, "Um, hey, man, I'm going to be honest with you. There was a period of time when... I wouldn't recite the creed, or I was angry every time it was recited. And he goes, okay, you might want to explain that one, you know. Well, I have phenomenal parents who, who raised me in, in a house that, that showed unconditional love. Great examples, right? But, and I was blessed beyond measure. But our personal walk with Christ is just that. It's our personal relationship, our personal understanding, Right, and so I rocked along throughout my life. Had an idea, like knew what the gospel was, understood the truth, believed in Christ. But the web, the whole deeper design of the Christian story, had not begun to make itself apparent in my life. And so a few years ago, it wasn't that long ago, uh, things started snapping into place. And whenever they did, so my my faith had, and my understanding had jumped forward. The problem was my maturity overall hadn't quite caught up to it, right? And so that resulted in this thing called overzealousness. And so I started reading things, you know, where Christ talks about people who just say, memorize sayings, just wrote memorization, right? And it doesn't ever make the drop from here to here. And so I would actually sit in church Watch other people, this is ridiculous, watch other people, whether or not they memorized or or didn't know it or did know it, but then even if they did know it, I would judge that person because I thought, you know what, I bet they're not even thinking about what they're saying. The sad part was I was one of the people that I was judging, right? That's how blinded I was by my own spiritual immaturity, my own immaturity in life in general, right? And so the creed I, it pained me whenever people said it because I, I thought, man, no, nobody's thinking about the deeper meaning here. And I wasn't either. And honestly, I didn't until we started doing this series. David wanted me to share that with you today. A lot of you may say the creed, may not know it fully. It's okay, right? All that matters is that we believe and understand what's in it. All right? And so that's what we're going to go into today. So, uh, so the, the specific part of this creed, right, that we're covering, originally in, the, in what's called the Old Roman Creed, read, who was born of the Holy Spirit and of the Virgin Mary. So now we have who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. So you don't have a whole lot of changes there, right? The, the words, the phraseology changed a little bit, but overall the meaning hasn't left it. But it's interesting to note that they changed that from uh, born of the Holy Spirit to conceived by the Holy Spirit. And that's key in understanding this verse and the deeper meaning behind it. Um, now, for the most part, I'd say we probably don't think about the virgin birth. When, when do we think about it mostly during the year? Christmas, right? And, I mean, for me, every time I hear the words, 
uh, for unto you a child will be born. Like, I can smell Christmas trees, right, and, and see lights like, immediately, right? And I love Christmas. It's my favorite time of year. But automatically, I'm taken there when these verses are read. But then once that's done, agree, disagree, once that's done, don't we kind of put it on the back burner for a year? Right? We, we don't really think about it anymore. Like We accept, okay, Jesus was born, uh, a Savior is born in the world for us. We celebrate that, but we don't really think about it for the rest of the year until December comes back around. We go everywhere else but there. Um, now, I, one of the things I had to ask myself is, is, I don't delve into it during the year personally, and, or I haven't before. <laughs> I definitely did this year. Uh, but... Was it because I accepted it as fact? I believed in the virgin birth. I believed in that, and, and that's just what it was, which I do. Or is it because I never have really delved deeper into that question, into that occurrence, this miraculous occurrence? And that's a fact. That's exactly what happened. I've never jumped with both feet into this to really to flesh it out, to, to look at it from a, a deeper meaning and understanding. And so, historically, up until about 150 years ago, when we have what we, is known as the rise of liberal Christianity, right? And it's not your liberal beliefs of today. It's not what I'm talking about. It's this view of, um, I'm move this over without breaking it. It's this view of Christianity where it tries to essentially, looking at the miracles of the Bible, it tries to explain them away in a different form. Because people, up until about 150 years ago, Right, everybody's pretty much accepted it as a miraculous. They accepted that when the Bible said a miracle occurred, it occurred. Ever since then, more and more people, especially scientists, come in. They say, well, if there's not a rational explanation for this, it can't be a miracle. There has to be a natural explanation. And so they ascribe a natural explanation for it. Um, for example, I, I heard or read a story about three years ago of a group of priests who said that Jesus feeding the 5,000 on the hillside, that's 5,000 men, not included the women and children, that he didn't actually multiply the fishes and the loaves. That's not what he did. The real miracle was that he got that many people to share with one another, right? <laughs> While that would be a miracle, right? Even by today's standards, okay, no doubt about it. But that's not what Scripture says happened. But because they can't wrap their mind around the miraculous, that's what they want to come up with. And it wasn't that there's... These opponents of the virgin birth, this miracle today, you did have them back in the day. Think about the whole nature of the virgin birth at the time. Never happened before, hadn't happened since, right? And so you have a, a you know, the estimated age of Mary is between 12 to 14 years old. Okay, she's very young, especially by today's cultural standards. And so she is betrothed to Joseph and then she is with child. Can you imagine the rumor mill that's going around, right? At this time, it's a small town. Everybody knows everybody's secrets. So there were rumors at the time of Jesus' parentage that he was an illegitimate child, that he was born of sexual immorality. One pagan opponent of Christianity early on, even, crazily enough, even stated that his belief was that Jesus Christ was a result of Mary being raped by a Roman soldier. Those were some of the opponents in the early days of Christianity. And so this, um, this story that we accept as true has been under assault really from the time that it happened. Because people haven't been able to see the truth, haven't been able to trust God in the miraculous. But let's go to where it all comes from. Roughly about 700 years ago, 
before the birth of Christ, the prophet, or I'm 700 years before the birth of Christ, uh, the prophet Isaiah states in verse 714, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now, we always hear at Christmas time from Matthew when he quotes Isaiah, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Other translations of, of, of Yahweh or of Yeshua, of Jesus' name is God is salvation, right? Either one are accurate, and either one pretty much represents exactly what ended up happening, right? So, we've all heard this story at Christmas time that, that an angel of the Lord appeared to Mary and informed her of her favor with God, right? I'm just going to set this over here. And what does she do? The, the, the angel Gabriel shows up and says, hey, favored one, you found favor with the Lord. Unto you a child is going to be born. And Mary goes, hold on, uh, how is that possible? Because I have not known a man intimately. How is this going to happen? And the angel tells Mary something, and, it, and this is really what I want to key in on today and what we're going to base everything off of. The angel tells her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the Most High will overshadow you, right? In explaining to Mary how this is going to happen. Both of these things are extremely key, and there's so much depth in, in both of these. And we're just going to hit the wave tops of it. So first off, the word used for spirit in Greek is the word pneuma. Now, have you all have you ever seen Rob Bell's videos? Maybe, uh, maybe not, right? And it's called Numa, and that's not the spelling, right? That's N-O-O-M-A, Numa, P-N-E-U-M-A. I get that right? Yeah, so how many of you have ever worked with pneumatic tools before? Okay, what's a pneumatic tool powered by? Air, right? Compressed air. How many of you have ever gotten pneumonia before? Right? It's a, it's a sickness that affects our lungs, right? Our ability to breathe, our airflow. Right, so probably one of the most well-known examples of Numa is in Acts two during Pentecost, when the disciples are all gathered in one place. Right, he says, suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. And tongues like flames of fire that were divided appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different languages, as the Spirit gave them ability for speech. Another example that we're going to look at a little bit later in, in more depth, and that's uh, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus um, is uh, a, a member of the Jewish high class. He's a pretty important guy, only meets with Jesus at night because he doesn't want anybody to know that he's uh, meeting with Christ, right? Because he doesn't want them to know that he believes in him. But Christ uh, explains to him, he says, the wind, or pneuma as it's used here, blows where it pleases and you hear its sound. But you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So we see quite a few examples of this throughout the New Testament. I'm not going to go through each and every one of them, but there's a ton of instances where, the, where this is listed and talked about. But for me, one of the questions I'd ask is, where is the Holy Spirit talked about in the Old Testament? Anybody, I mean, when, raise your hand if mostly when you hear Holy Spirit, you think of New Testament. I mean, for the most part, right, a lot of us do. I did. And, and so I was like, okay, so where does the Spirit show up in the Old Testament? All right, I, I kind of got my mind blown on this one. Um, pretty much from the get-go, I'm going to actually read from the beginning of the Bible until the Spirit shows up, right? This Bible holds together and doesn't fall apart. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Bam, there it is. Didn't say God was hovering over the waters, it said the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, there is in that statement the word used for spirit, and I'm going to probably butcher the Hebrew on this one, is Rach Elohim, the Spirit of God, also known as a mighty wind, a wind from God. And then, literally, on the next page, God does what? He forms man out of the dust of the earth, and what does he do? Breathes life, right? Breathes life into him. You see this common thread here, right? Continue to repeat itself. And throughout the Old Testament, we see incredible instances where the Spirit of the Lord has come upon, which the same word is used, right, of, of this, this pneuma, this, this wind coming upon them. And they have complete amazing feats, right? How many of you know the story of Samson? Right? Okay, some of us. Um, different heroes of the Old Testament, when the Spirit of the Lord came upon them, and they were able to do these things that they were not able to do before. But something that Pope John Paul II um, very keenly pointed out was that up until the line of David, the, the, the Davidic line, right, where Jesus is uh, descended from, that the Spirit kind of showed up sporadically and unpredictably. But once the Davidic line was established, there, was, there seemed to be more continuity, more uh, uh, stability to the Spirit arriving and doing things through his people, specifically through the line of David, eventually, obviously, all the way down to Christ. And he said it starts here in 1 Samuel 16, 13, when it says, The Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward, meaning a continuation of the Spirit resting on him. So how does this play into the Holy Spirit conceiving Christ, right? You're going, I thought we were talking about conceived by the Holy Spirit. So let's go back to Adam. Why did God create Adam to begin with? Why did he create any of us? So that we would know him, love him, and that he may love us, right? Are there any other reasons that I'm missing on that one? Ultimately, baseline, that's why he created us, right? So... Let's go to Mary. The Holy Spirit came upon Mary to conceive Jesus. Why? So that we may know him and love him and that he may love us. There's a common thread here that remains the same because the Spirit has been there from the beginning with one chief purpose. And that's for us to come to know Christ. Because being filled with the Spirit means being filled with a love for Christ. When we pray and ask the Holy Spirit for the power of discernment, for wisdom, and it, and it gives us truth, right? That's what we're looking for. Most of the time we pray to the Holy Spirit, hey, guide us, uh, give us the truth in this matter, explain these things to us that we don't understand. The Holy Spirit's purpose is to create life and to bring truth. And by conceiving in Mary's womb, it brought forth truth manifest itself. But it doesn't, it doesn't stop there. And this, this is where is, uh, I had never read this before. And, and as you start looking at it and looking deeper at it, it really, it, it really blew my mind whenever I saw the overall web of this whole story coming together. The second part of the message of the angel Gabriel to Mary is what? It says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. But then the second part is, the Most High will overshadow you. 
as is most often the case in Scripture, you dive a little bit deeper, just below the surface, you will find a whole world of information. And in this instance, it's the word episkiase, and I probably just butchered that. But the definition for episkiase is a bright cloud of glory. That is what is used, that's what Luke uses whenever he is conveying the story on of Gabriel speaking to Mary, of the overshadowing, the covering, right, this episkiase. So where else is it used? Exodus 24, it's used to describe the cloud of glory of the Lord that surrounded Mount Sinai when Moses approached. In Exodus 40, it's used to describe the cloud of glory that covered the tabernacle, the, the tent of meeting that actually resided over the Holy of Holies. And it's used to describe the visible manifestation of God himself, the Spirit of God. So I ask you, what was in the Holy of Holies? What's that? Ark of the Covenant, right? What was inside the Ark of the Covenant? The Ten Commandments, right? And the Ten Commandments were what? God's word, God's commandments to his people, as well as a representation of their delivery from slavery to Egypt. So let's fast forward. The Shekinah glory, the Piskiase, this word that, that Luke uses, that overshadows Mary, that covers Mary, Starting to see where I'm going with this? Mary, by being a faithful, willing vessel, is the new Ark of the Covenant. Inside her womb, now conceived by the Holy Spirit, is Christ. God's word, but made flesh. Signifying deliverance for his people from slavery to sin and death, just as it signified before in the Ark of the Covenant. And the promise of the promised land, eternal life. Do you see the parallels and do you see the web and the story that God is weaving this whole thing. I don't believe that there's a storyteller who's ever lived on earth who could put this kind of thing together. So in order for Mary to be the Ark of the Covenant, though, she had to be chosen, and to be chosen as the mother of, of, of the Word made flesh, she had to believe in Him. I'd never thought about this before. James wrote something called the Proto-Evangelium, and this talks about Mary's upbringing. It talks about her childhood, her parents, and all this. And so we know quite a bit about her childhood. We know that she was the child of a woman who was known to be barren. Um, in fact, Joachim, her dad, went in to offer up a sacrifice in the temple. And when he did so, the chief priest told him, nope, you've not produced offspring for the nation of Israel. You need to get out. And he was deeply grieved. He went out to the wilderness. What did he do? Fasted for 40 days. Sound familiar? Fasted for 40 days, at which point an angel appeared to Anne, Mary's mother, and said, hey, you're going to be with child, or you are with child, and, and she's like, how can this be, right, for I'm a barren woman? Whenever Joachim comes back, she runs to him and says, hey, guess what, we're going to have a baby, and of course, they're overjoyed, and, and the angel had told her that through this child, all the nations of the world would be blessed, and thus enter Mary, right? So we know that Mary was brought up in a very devout home. She knew the scriptures. She understood what the prophets had foretold. She knew of Christ before he showed up, she believed in who he was before he showed up. Probably never guessed in a million years that she would be the one to bear him. There's a guy named Timothy George who had a great quote on this. He said, Mary was a disciple of Christ before she was his mother, for if she had not believed, she would not have conceived. God needed a willing, faithful vessel favored by him to bring his very son into this world. Now, why was it necessary for Christ to be born 
of the Virgin Mary, right? The ultimate purpose, the ultimate lesson, and the reason that we recite this portion of the creed is that we understand that God was one person, two natures, that he was fully man and fully God. And he had to, there were three things that he had to be in order to be our Savior. Fully man, fully God, but also completely and totally without sin, completely blameless. So by being conceived by the Holy Spirit, Christ is born without original sin, which all of us are born with, right? When, ever since the fall of Adam, all of us that are born of the flesh have been born into sin. We were born with it. But Christ being born of the Holy Spirit is exempt from the Adamic sin, as they call it. Adam's sin and death, he is not a party to that anymore. He is born differently. And the, the fall of Adam is the very thing that he is coming to correct. So why, though? Have ever wondered why Christ had to be fully man and why that even matters? Have you ever told somebody or been told by somebody, walk a mile in my shoes and then you'll understand the way I operate? Raise your hand if you've said that before. Had it said to you before, right? <clears throat> Anytime somebody, you're telling your story, oh, you know, hey, I broke both my legs and I got pneumonia and all this, this terrible story. And somebody walks up and says, man, I know how you feel. I stubbed my toe last night and it hurt really bad. Like automatically you're going to go, man, you have no idea how I feel right now, right? Christ had to come and walk in our shoes in order to be a just judge. He had to live and deal with the same pains and suffer the same things that we had to deal with on a daily basis so that he could come and say, hey, I know where you've been. I've walked in your shoes, right? That's the portion of him being fully man. He had to experience all that. He could not be exempt from it. That is what allowed him to be a just or allows him to be the just judge right? Now, on the note of, of him being perfect and blameless, you, you think about that. He was on this earth for 33 years. In eight days, I will have been on this earth for 36 years. He never did anything out of spite or vengeance. He had no pride, no prejudice, not a single lustful thought. 36 is coming up, right? I've done all of these things and worse and still fall prey to them. I can't fathom. I, I cannot wrap my mind around being completely and fully a human being and not, and, and, and not transgressing against God in some way, shape, or form, even in my mind. Think about that. And yet Christ did it. And he had to so that he could be the unblemished, blameless sacrifice to serve as a propitiation for our sins. So, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus in John 3, 3 through 8, he says that no one can enter the kingdom of heaven unless he is born again. And usually nowadays when we hear that whole term of born again, what do we think of? You know, somebody quit smoking, they quit drinking, they stopped doing something bad right now, all of a sudden they're a better person. All of those things are true, our actions change, but it's much deeper than that, being born again. And Christ says, you know, if yeah, unless a person is born again of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the, enter the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus is a little confused by this, and he says, how can this be? Can a man enter his mother's womb for a second time, right? And Christ lays out to him, hey, look, 
Whatever's born of the flesh is flesh. In other words, it's dead in its sin. By being born again of water and the spirit, as Christ was, we are sharing in the nature of Christ himself. That's what he has invited us to. He has two natures. He knows our same pains, our same trials, and he is the perfect sacrifice. And he has come to satisfy a justice that was demanded, a justice that he, the Holy Spirit, and God created together at the beginning of the very creation. Because a perfect God is perfectly just and demanded a perfect sacrifice. I've heard people say, why? What's the point of the Christian story at all? Why did Christ even have to die on the cross? Why couldn't God just forgive our sins and we go on down the road? And I just talked about it a little bit. Perfect justice demands perfect sacrifice. But aside from all that, I'll just answer and close with this question. What better story could there be than that of a God who loves us so much that he himself takes on the nature of the flesh and all the limitations that that comprises, walks amongst us, suffers the daily pains we suffer, and then offers himself up as a sacrifice and endures a terrible death in order to pay off the debt that we owe. If you find a better story than that, you let me know because I would love to hear it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that your word reached out to the hearts and minds of these people today. Lord, I pray that we come to an understanding of who you are and the miracles that you have worked in your, in your servant Mary and in all of your servants today as we reach out to those who don't know you. Lord, be with us as we go from this place this week. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you, James. Uh, let me say that is not an easy one to take on as a guest preacher. And you did great, James, so we're really thankful for that. If uh, uh, We're going to now say the creed. If you all would please stand. Uh, if you are not a Christian, please don't feel any pressure to say something that you don't believe. But if these are words that you can confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart, uh, this is the core of who we are and what we believe. And so uh, let's go ahead and recite the Apostles' Creed now. If we could get the, yep, there we go. Uh, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose from the dead, and he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated.